this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a political analyst, a broadcaster and an author. A vocal critic of Brexit, he penned What the Hell Happens Now in 2016 and started the Romaniacs podcast the following year, which evolved into Oh God, What Now podcast. His latest work, How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, is a sharp and scathing observation of the British political system, which looks to offer solutions to an undeniably broken institution. Ian Dunt, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you for having me. It's such a it's such a, a joy to have you here. We follow your work and I have to say, because I'm not an impartial journalist, we completely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Uh, I just want to go back a little bit into your into your background because you have become this this very respected voice within the British media on politics and particularly about the whole fiasco around around Brexit. But actually, uh, you started off doing a degree in philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't very good at philosophy. I didn't do a lot of studying when I was there. I was I kind of wasted that entire time, and that point really was sort of mostly interested in ketamine and spent most of my time doing ketamine. <laughs> And sort of missed it. And now I'm actually quite close, you know, with some of the people who would have been teaching me, who I consult with. I mean, there was a lot of philosophy in my last book, How to Be a Liberal. And so, you know, working my way through it, and I feel that sense of loss as to what I just threw away in my early 20s. Mm. But yeah, I would love to say that I could sit here as someone who had a full grounding, a full education in philosophy, but actually I just sort of pissed it all away. And um, what, what was your background, your childhood? Uh, so my mum's Guatemalan, my dad's English. I grew up for a little bit in Chile and then in various places in Hampshire, but predominantly Winchester. Um, and it was quite tedious and pedestrian and spending most of the time just desperately thinking, my God, I need to get to London because that's going to save me. So my, my, my formative moment for London is being um, quite young, being taken up to the capital and sitting in the back of this car. And I looked up at this sort of woman on the top deck of a bus. You know, like when you're a kid... You sort of think that you can look at people and they'll usually smile or they'll sort of ruffle up your hair or something. She just looked at me and just gave me the V sign. And I just thought, I have to come to live in London. Like that is, I saw, that is <laughs> That's the coolest thing I've ever seen yeah. in my life. And that was the moment and I've been living in London ever since. I would just point out most children would be traumatised by this. <laughs> <laughs> Not this one. This one thought it was outstanding. Uh, you went to uh, the London School of Journalism. You did journalism and media law. And then you began your career at Pink News. So this would have been, what, the 90s? Oof. No, 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 no. Oh, God, I'm not that old. Um, no, no, no. This would have been... 2004, I suppose. All right. So, yeah. I mean, but what I'm trying to get at is by 2004, being with Pink News wasn't uh, as difficult as it would have been in the previous decade. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no difficulty there at all. The, the difficulty, probably for me editorially, was because I'm not gay. I didn't have the intuitive sense of who were the divas that were loved and why. It was completely baffling to me by some weren't and some weren't. And then the fact that the, the coverage then was sort of quite sort of wrote it was either like, look at how tremendously well we've done in this area or look at how what absolutely terrible things are happening in this other area. It was before the period where I think identity politics has made most of those discussions much, much more complex and ferocious. It was a quite sort of escalator towards further mm. progress. Identity we, politics now, though, would probably really take against the fact that you, as, as a heterosexual man, was working on, on a gay publication. Uh, that might be true. I wonder. I don't, you know... Was it a problem for you? No, it wasn't a problem for me at all. I think when you speak to people online, you hear very puritanical and black and white views on that sort of idea. I have never heard any gay friend of mine 
suggest for a second that there would be anything difficult about that or, or questionable about it. I mean, it's not even as if you're, you're not even having the debate about whether, you know, a straight person could play a gay person in a film, which, by the way, I think they should be able to do. But if whether you can cover gay issues from an editorial perspective as a straight person, I mean, if we're really saying that that is not possible, then we're really eradicating any potential for solidarity in, in society. I absolutely agree with you. You then went on to the erotic review, and we've got to presume that, that you're familiar with sex and were allowed to write oh, about no. this, this, uh, this. This interview is going to places that I had not anticipated and am not enjoying. Okay. Uh, the erotic review is a wonderful publication. Sadly, it no longer exists. Right, right, right. Uh, but, it, but it was... a. And it must have been a, a lovely grounding. It was, by all accounts, such a fun office. Yeah, I mean, we never spent much time in the office. There were very long, boozy lunches and very strange evening parties. Uh, and it had a sort of old, it's very oddly sort of quaint and traditional English magazine. Overwhelmingly English, I think, more than British. Um, and it had a sort of attitude to that stuff that was just sort of quite, I think... From the modern perspective, you know, with online porn and all that, it's really quite sweet what the online review used to do. And I think there was a there was a, a possibility that it could have come into the modern world in a way that was really quite healthy, I think, societally healthy, for a way of talking about sex that isn't pornographic, mm. but that does have a sense of sort of naughtiness and, and, and all the rest that isn't um that isn't necessarily safe, even if it isn't pornographic. Yeah. Um and it just it just couldn't really find its market after a while. And I, I suspect the horrible reality is, I think, you know, as all these sort of old withered generals passed away, they no longer wanted to read stories about spanking. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't really have an audience anymore. And it, yeah, so the, the market couldn't find it. Couldn't find a market. <laughs> so, but you went from from these two really fairly niche publications, really to establish a very big profile in the British media. And this was, of course, all around Brexit. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I've been working at a website called politics.co.uk for years before Brexit happened. Um, and for, I had that, that tremendous uh, luxury of being able to fail over and over and over again in your 20s with no one really giving a shit about what it is that you're doing. You know, no one was watching, no one was really reading. And I would fail in a variety of ways, failing on getting basic facts right. It helps to fail on that kind of stuff early on because you remember that sense of anxiety and fear of realising that you've messed it up. Yeah. Yeah. And then also realising that there was a market out there for just get in and really understand the thing that you're writing about. There's whole areas of the British political landscape that almost no one covers. I mean, criminal justice is one of them. And in fact, you could say the success of, for instance, the secret barrister is an example of that, of the yeah. appetite for please tell us how something actually works mm -hmm. and what is actually going on there, rather than the kind of frothy day-to-day -day empty calories that we consume for political coverage. Mm. And I mean, you start the book looking at the whole changes in probation and why mm -hmm. that was something that had to be done very fast just because there needed to be a result. And the whole book really just unpacks the way that politics works here, from the selection of the candidates to the elections and so on. But at the Part of it is the assertion that British politics is broken. Why do you say that? Yeah. Well, because no part of the system works and nobody has any idea what's going on. And that second part is the most disturbing to me. That I think we have this kind of British daydream almost of someone somewhere understands what's going on. As a grown-up. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, remember, I remember, like, I think a couple of weeks after the Brexit vote, I was chatting to this guy who runs a local Turkish restaurant in my area, and he was like, he was like oh, don't worry, they, this won't happen. He's like, this country, they never let it go against the money. They'll never let it do a thing that doesn't communicate to what the markets all want. And I was like, you know what? For the first time, I think it might actually do that. 
And that even the way he says that is that idea of someone somewhere in the British deep state, you know, it's sort of controlling, making sure things don't go too crazy. In fact, when you look at our structures of our politics, that is not the case. So the civil service, for instance, overwhelmingly incentivized to move jobs about every two years, sometimes a bit less, sometimes a bit more. They're just never in a position long enough to develop any kind of deep subject expertise. And the institutional memory is lost. And the institutional memory is completely lost. Yeah. So, you know, there's a part in the book where we look at what happens during the financial crash. You go, the financial crash hits and you've just got no one with the expertise to grapple with this stuff. We fool ourselves because we had Gordon Brown who had been a chancellor who'd been there for a long time and did understand these issues as prime minister, that there was some kind of effective institutional response. Actually, that was not the case. Hardly anyone had any of the specialist expertise to handle it. They suddenly brought in, over the course of about six months, lots and lots of people. And as soon as it was over, they just dissipated. And then here's the killer part. No one bothered to record the skills that they had in their personnel at the time or where they went. So not only do we not have the skills, we don't even know who might have the skills, where they might have gone to, what was previously understood in institutional memory. We just fundamentally, as a country, do not know what's going on. So that's when, when you look at the news and you're like, Gavin Williamson is the defence secretary. You know, Chris Grayling is in charge of prisons. Dominic Raab is in charge of your foreign policy. And you think, well, how can this be? He seems like he just doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. It's like, no, but not only does he not have any idea what he's talking about, none of the people under him have any idea what they're talking about either. Which is absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And I mean, you go into that selection process. How then do we get stuck with really what seems to be second-rate people? So I think part of the problem is what we're looking for in the selection of MPs. right? So this is the process before they run for election when the party selects them. And what do we look for? We look for partisans. They're selected by partisans in the local party to be partisans. That is what they are. And they go through, from whether it's the central party or the local party and the local party membership or the committees, that's what they look for. People who are going to hand out pamphlets on a weekend. People with a bit of local roots, hopefully someone that's quite articulate, certainly someone that's very good at networking. These are the qualities that we pick for. Then suddenly, after the election, they're like, oh... Now you've got to scrutinise legislation. It's like it's like we'd had a job interview for a completely different role. Mm. You know, no one mentions, no one, I spoke to many, very many MPs for this book. No, I asked every single one of them, did anyone at any point in your selection process ask you about scrutinising legislation? And the answer is no, from every single one in every single party from every different era. They never get asked about it. And then suddenly, apparently, that's their constitutional role and it turns out they're not very good at it. Every time we ask MPs to look at specificities, they fail. When we ask them to look at the estimates on finance, when we ask them to look with any detail at report stage of a bill on the forensic line-by-line -line assessment, every single time they rush back into generalism, sort of floating thoughts, maybe a clip of one minute that they can put on Twitter or that might, you know, in an ideal world, make it onto the nightly news. They are not capable of scrutinising legislation, their basic constitutional function, because we do not pick them to be capable of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's extraordinary how this hasn't been articulated in this way before. And they theoretically, though, have the civil service who should be there to do all that. What's failing there? Well, in a way, they're almost worse than the ministers. I mean, you take, so take permanent secretaries, right? We've had about three that have stayed in the post for a very long time. Permanent secretaries are basically the CEO of the department. Um, about three have stayed in post for a long time, or at least there were three. One of them was Tom Scholar at the Treasury, who'd been there for 20 years, and then, of course, got sacked by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng because, you know, 
He had the wherewithal as the man from the treasury to ask, where is the money coming from? Which is not an unreasonable question for a man from the treasury to ask. So now there's about two permanent secretaries who've been there for a long time. The rest of them stay in post for about, I think the average is two years and 10 months, which is just a little bit longer than a football manager. I mean, you are dealing with huge rates of churn. Now, you look at certain departments, the tre- treasury has a staff turnover rate of 25%. That's a turnover rate of a McDonald's. They just churn through jobs. Why? Because it's the only way to get more money. There's been a pay freeze. I mean, it was anyway, it was always the case. It was as a culture in the civil service, it was professional amateurism and it has always been there. But it's much worse now because after austerity, you slam down on salaries, can't get any any change in your in your income unless you move position. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to keep on moving. So some guy that sits there and becomes an expert in sort of railway contracts, let's say procurement, let's say he does 15 years of that, will just sit on exactly the same salary, be considered a failure by everyone in that organisation, the same grade. Someone who suddenly switches and goes, oh, bit of negotiation with the EU, you know, a little bit of sort of stuff with the financial markets over here, something over here in Lisbon, that's a high flyer. Six months in each one, never has any idea what they're talking about. So we have this ministerial class, no idea what they're talking about, moved all the time. The only thing to restrain them is the civil service. And yet we have put exactly the same set of incentives on the civil service that mean that they don't have any specialist knowledge either. So are the lords the grown-ups in the room? Yes. And that's a terrifying thing to say. (laughs) And it's not a particularly appetising thing to say, and I get that because it is non-democratic. However, what we see of the lords is the worst aspect. You know, we see the bit where the prime minister comes in. He's like, oh, look, this guy gave me a loan and this guy's a Russian asset. (laughs) You know, I'll give them a lordship and no one can stop me. That's obviously filth. We should take the power away from the prime minister to do that. But about a third of the members of the lords are crossbenchers. And the crossbenchers are pretty much the only people in the system who know anything about any specialist subject areas, who have any kind of deep knowledge or expertise. Mm. You know, they're brought in after a successful career in business, in the law, in volunteering, in science, in the arts. They're brought in, they have a lifetime of expertise. They cannot be bribed. They cannot be threatened. They don't have anything to offer them that they're going to want. They're in there for life. And when they start looking at laws, particularly on benefits and particularly on legal changes, it's honestly like, it's like the first time the government's even seen its own bill. You know, the bill was written as if it was written in crayons, essentially now. It's received no scrutiny at any point in the Commons. It gets to the Lords and suddenly a bunch of people are going to cut it up with knives and just be like, this is not good enough. You have not thought of the consequences. And what do you see? Like, first of all, you see thousands of amendments successfully introduced in the Lords. Uh, Partly that's because the government doesn't have a majority there. It can't just railroad through opposition. But it's also because even I sort of think in the back of their minds in their guilty nighttime secrets, the government knows that there has to be a place where people are improving legislation because it's not happening anywhere else. So again, it's amendments by opposition parties that are taken on board by the government, amendments that the government itself puts down and amendments from opposition parties straight out with any government involvement. And there at least you see some improvement. But here's the thing. You don't see it on big ticket items. You just see it in the stuff that no one's really paying attention to, no one cares too much about. When it comes to the sort of virile political topics that governments see themselves as defined by, then the old Westminster machismo takes over and they refuse to make the changes. What's the role of the press in all of this? Disappointing. And that's not 
entirely our fault. It's partly, I think, the financial model. So I think we were doing a much better job before the internet, which is a strange thing to say, especially considering that I own my entire career to the internet. But it annihilated our financial model. Okay, So, I mean, we lost it in two ways, right? Newspapers always got bought twice, basically. They got bought with the cover price, and they also got bought by the advertising that you put inside of them. Most importantly, by the way, not the display advertising, but the classified advertising, or the here's a job here or piano lessons here, especially for the local press. That was absolutely essential. Now, the internet then came along, we lost that income stream, and we got something quite dangerous for our industry, which was very, very clear information about what people were reading. Until then, no one had any idea. You know, you could put an article in there about Iraq, someone could, everyone could flick over it, you'd never know. Now, we know exactly what they read, we know exactly when they leave. And the problem is, let's say, you, let's say it's an article about Iraq, right? It takes, about a, it takes about a million quid a year to keep a reporter in Iraq, just in terms of security details, interpreters, let alone their salary, okay? And let alone them having the time to build the contacts out there before they start transmitting useful information. Now, you can write a story about... Nadine Dory said this on Twitter, and she's an idiot, and this guy said she's an idiot, and now this other guy, you know, the Gary Lineker's decided, now he's, he's slagging her off, and they're going to say, you write that up, it will get more traffic than the Iraq story. It costs nothing. It costs absolutely nothing. You, you and I could write that story in 30 minutes, less maybe, and publish it. And it'll get more traffic than something that costs a million pounds a year and lots of painstaking work. So that combination of the decline in the financial status of journalism, along with the access to much greater information about what readers wanted, I think really did a massive hindrance to our capacity as scrutiny, uh, as people that scrutinise what government does. But as consumers of the press, it's our fault too then. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Part of it is about what we ask the press to do and to change and we can do that and we can talk about that. But part of it also is that I think consumers of news need to realise that every time they click on something, they are not just reading something, they are making an expression of what they want to see more of. Mm. Because I've been on the back end of those websites and we will make more of it if you click on it. It is as simple as that. You know, so ultimately you have to think, what do I want to see? And I think you also have to make yourself quite literate as a newsreader. So for instance, you should be looking for news stories with two bylines. If it's a political news story and it's just got the byline of the lobby journalist, the person who's in Parliament, that is not okay because these guys don't have any background specialist knowledge except for Parliament itself. So if you say the government comes along and you will have seen this a lot over the last few weeks with Sunak, government comes along and says, look, I've got a housing policy, top five points, we're going to do this, it's going to be wonderful, everything's going to be fixed. Or for instance, I've got a policy on stopping the boats, going to do this, it'll all be fine and off we go. The lobby will just write that up. Okay, And sure, a day, two days later, there'll be an analysis piece about, oh, actually, there's all these practical problems and legal problems. It doesn't matter. The government got its message out. It used the journalist as a press office. What you want is a joint byline. You want the lobby journalist, sure, but you want the second byline to be the specialist reporter back in the office who understands 10 years, 15 years of housing policy, who understands 15 years of refugee law and refugee flows, who can sit there and add context to that piece and go, well, actually, this is what the government's saying, but these are the reasons, these are the kind of challenges that they're going to face. So I think, yeah, you do need to educate yourself as a reader of news about what is a good mark of quality. Mm. So all of this contributes to our broken political system. How do we fix it? I keep on trying to sip my coffee and you keep on asking short, pithy questions. (laughs) Have a little sip of coffee because you do have an excellent epilogue which does look at the way that all of this could change. Thank you, yeah. So there's loads of, you know, big ideas and small ideas. So just to take one small idea rather than talking about the larger stuff, we have a complete inequality of arms between government and opposition, but also government, more importantly, and backbenchers. Backbenchers just don't have access to decent information in order to challenge government. In other countries, including in the US, you have offices that will basically work to educate and to provide resources for politicians to challenge government, especially on financial legislation where they're particularly illiterate and weak. 
ministers have something called a private office. It's like five or six civil servants just working for them, looking at the areas they care about. I think we should have a big private office just for MPs, just that MPs can use to educate themselves on what's going on. It shouldn't be led by their requests. It should be looking at legislation proactively to see where are the dangers, where is it too broad, what would be an appropriate use of statutory instrument, what doesn't look like it's legally competent, and making sure that at least we have some kind of resource for MPs to scrutinise government. At the same time, I would want to take away some of MPs' constituency work, which at the moment means that they're sort of unable to scrutinise legislation because they just don't have time. They spend two-thirds of their time on local issues. Most of it should go to local councils. You know, the vast majority, there's stories in the books of MPs talking to you saying, I'm getting constituents coming to me saying, well, I got sent the wrong size of toilet seat by the shop and like, how are you going to help? And the worst part is, the part that makes you just lose all hope is the MPs do it. Mm. because they don't want to dare to have someone on social media going, look at this bastard, look at what he wouldn't do for me. So my, prefer- my preferred sort of solution to that is to go do what Denmark does and just have an organisation called The Ombudsman, which investigates complaints against authorities. You would still have MPs there for stuff that ministers have done wrong. So you're looking at asylum, you know, maybe benefits to a certain extent. But you would take away stuff like intractable planning disputes and all of this stuff that really they have no place looking at in the first place that should be the work of local councillors. So in those two ideas, you get some sense of how you can try and inform MPs so they can scrutinise and also you can try and take away some of the circumstances that prevent them from doing it. I'm not saying that would fix it outright but at least you'd be in an improved situation to the one we're in now. What about MPs and particularly cabinet ministers making a great deal of money through their privileged position? I'm thinking of PPE and various other scandals mm. that we've seen recently. So, I mean, for a start, I don't have a lot of sympathy with um, the second jobs thing with MPs. I just sort of, I mean, as far as I can tell, they, they can't do the job that they have properly. Now, there's two jobs there, right? The constituency job, and the job scrutinising legislation. Now, if you were really to do the first job properly, you couldn't do the second properly. And if you were to do the second properly, you couldn't do the first. So the idea then is like, oh, but I also have time to go off and have this consultancy. You know, you absolutely do not have time for that if you were doing your job correctly. Now, I accept that no one's really worried about, you know, someone that spends a day being a doctor. You know, what we really care about is consultancy. So I would have thought that the right approach to look at that, the right kind of moral prism, is... In which direction is the experience going? Are you using your experience of outside Parliament to inform your work in it, as a doctor might, or are you using your experience of Parliament to inform your work outside? That second category seems to me to be the real moral problem that we face and the one we have to address as quickly as humanly possible. But why are these people not going to prison? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I don't... I've never found that useful because, I mean, most of the time, they're perfectly within the rules. I mean, it, it's more about just how can we change the system? I, I don't have so much time for blaming the people. The it just, But pe- it feels morally repugnant that people mm-hmm. are making these enormous profits mm-hmm. uh, and, and really by taking the eye off the ball of the job they're supposed to be doing, as you say, but particularly when you look at the situation that most of us, most British citizens, find themselves in. Yeah, no, it is. It's grim. And more importantly, it contributes to this sense, which has never really been true, that politicians are all out for themselves and they're greedy and they're blah, 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 blah. There are better ways to be greedy. I mean, I don't, you know, sometimes politicians go, well, obviously I could have made much more money in the private sector. And you look at them and you think, 
I don't know, man. I'm not sure that you could. To be honest, <laughs> if I'm 100 honest. I'm not entirely convinced that you could. But it's most people do not go into it for greed. Most of it go into it out of a sense of social responsibility. That sense of social responsibility could be quite a right wing one or a left wing one. You know, not everyone has the same sense of what that means. But most of them are ultimately motivated by those partisan views rather than anything else. So, I, I, to me, it's sort of past berating them individually. Although, obviously, if you follow me on Twitter, that is something that I do quite a lot. <laughs> but it's ultimately about what can we do with the system to incentivize the behavior that we want and to disincentivize that which we don't want. And I accept that it's not just systems. Culture matters and people matter. That's true. But you've, I've spoken to lots of MPs recently who the stuff that they're most secretive about is when they actually cooperated with another party to improve legislation. That's the extraordinary thing. That stuff that seems like a really good way to behave is the stuff where they're actually the most nervous. They, they killed all the quotes I had in the book that were about it, removed any details from stories because you cannot get caught doing that. You look like a traitor to your party. Whereas in every case, it was this is how we make this legislation better. The system doesn't let us do it. So we have to do it in secret like a conspiracy. Now, if you have a system like that, that is incentivizing the worst kind of legislative outcomes, just actually incentivizing politicians against the improving of legislation, regardless of which party you're in, you have got a major problem. And I think you start with the system. You start fixing the system. Then we can start looking at, you know, any other problems that we might face. So is anybody going to start fixing the system? So I think you have a window of opportunity after elections. So you see it in 1979, the creation of the select committee system. I mean, if Margaret Thatcher, you know, if she'd spotted what those guys were doing, if it was 1980 even, she would have killed that, you know, in its bed. But you don't. It's the turn of the election. Everything's up in the air. You said all this idealistic stuff in opposition. You suddenly have to do it. If we didn't have the modern select committee system, we'd be in a much worse place than we are now because it genuinely works. That happened in 1979. You look at 1997, you look at the independence of the Bank of England, you look at the reforms of the Lords that created the crossbench peers who do so much good work now. That all comes from those, that initial period of new Labour. You look at 2010, you see the implementation of the right committee uh, reforms. I mean, it doesn't go far enough, but it was good stuff. The creation of the Office of Budget Responsibility, which now actually gives us objective and economic assessments when the Chancellor is speaking. It's an absolutely vital resource. Like this, There's a glimmer the first two years of a government. After the first two years, your game's up. You're not going to get anything out of these guys. But you've got that glimmer. So to me, we're a year out from an election. The task is to try and force people into committing as much as possible to clearing up the system. It doesn't have to be details. They can call it whatever they want. You know, the clean up parliament inquiry or whatever kind of bucket of sort of <laughs> vague promises that they want. And then you hold them to it those first two years. Because after those two years are over, your chances are gone. I'm going to ask you for two predictions now. Mm. Firstly, who's going to win the next UK election? Labour. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that as a, you know, I just on the basis of the data that we have, and I think that that this is a dangerous area, and I, I hate it when people, you know, when political journalists act like they're reading tea leaves, but there's just that sort of, you know, you can almost feel it in the air that sense of when the public are just like time for a change now this mm. doesn't feel like, and sort of feels like we're at that point mm. but also just looking at the data it doesn't you know maybe it'll be a big majority maybe it would be small maybe it would be a hung parliament and they're the largest party but if you had any amount of money to bet who are you going to bet on you're going to bet on Labour's going to win the next election and the second prediction could we ever turn back Brexit oh yeah yeah are we likely to yeah I think we're on course really yeah yeah I do absolutely so we were never going to be able to talk about it for the first 10 years right we need that what mattered, I think, was a reset in the national instinct about it. 
that sort of sense of, well, obviously it's been a disaster. And where are we now? You know, that drip, drip, drip of news stories. It's not like, you know, there's one revelation one day on the road to Damascus and everyone changes. You know, but that drip, drip, drip of this isn't working, that isn't working, this isn't working, my life hasn't improved. That you're almost at the point now where instinctively people say, well, obviously Brexit was a bit of a disaster. And that is step one. You know, step two is probably under a Labour government. You would have a closer relationship outside of the single market and the customs union, but a rationalisation and a rational conversation that could be had where we're not like, oh, I wonder if the French are our allies or not. This is obviously a completely insane place to be. And then step three is going in for a deeper relationship, which it might be membership or it might be trying to reform EFTA to have a sort of, you know, an outer tier of countries that like to keep a step away but still want to be involved in the single market and blah, blah, blah. We don't know what step three looks like. But it seems to me that step one, we are very firmly right in the swing of taking right now. Step two seems to follow fairly logically from it and follows from what Labour itself is saying. Mm. If you listen closely to what they're saying, they're talking about, oh, we'll have an agricultural deal, we'll do something on phytosanitary products. You do stuff on phytosanitary, that's, what they're talking about is alignments of regulations. Okay, now once you start crossing that species barrier to, okay, so some of our laws are going to, you know, harmonise right now, you are well on the way to talking about a much, much closer relationship than they might want to admit in public. Let's just quickly end by talking about crossing that species barrier. <laughs> might you become a politician yourself? Oh, no, fuck no, no. This is a horrible <laughs> question. No, absolutely not. No, no, no. No, no, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Yeah. Ian, thank you for making me feel so much better about Brexit <laughs> and many other things. <laughs> How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't is published by Orion. It's available now and it's by the wonderful Ian Dunn. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Meet the Writers and thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Monica Lillis. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.